in a moment, we're going to dig into uh, Luke chapter 17. Feel free to turn there. I think it's human nature when we, when we don't really like our circumstances and when they are unusually painful or unbearably frustrating. I think it's pretty much human nature to start asking like the when questions. When is this going to end? When is there going to be something different? How long am I going to have to put up with this? I think if it gets bad enough for lots of people, we begin to ask like end of the world scenarios, like when will just the whole mess be cleaned up? And I I not have to live in that realm anymore. So I think a lot of those questions were being asked in the time of of Israel when Jesus did his ministry 30 AD or so. So they were living under Roman rule, and that meant oppression often. There would be insurrections to just like, we're, we're tired of the, the rule over us, we just want to be free. They were longing for glory days, they were longing for something better. Like, we could just get back there or get to something in the future. And so they were asking questions, and when will something change, and when will there be kind of a new order, and Uh, They ask those questions of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 17, I'm going to ask Jim Manning to come and read for us, beginning in verse 20 of Luke 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. Just as he was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house do not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So I was reading that passage with some friends, and this past week, and we got to the end there, it's like, okay, what was that all about? Because there's some strange images, right? There's some foreign concepts that we're trying to process and, and understand together. And it's strange, but yet the mood is like literally deadly serious. And it's so easy, it's so tempting when we're coming and doing like Bible reading or going through a passage to just kind of hit 
accelerate through that and then get to some stuff that seems a little bit more easily understandable or certainly a little bit more applicable. And then I think we have to say, well, wait, wait, wait. I mean, if Jesus said it, it's worth our attention to, to, to try to understand what exactly is going on, even if it isn't easy. And I think it's, it's super important to understand this because in this passage, Jesus is making a connection. I think it's, it's important that we make this connection, and that is the future with the present. So Jesus is showing us how some of those things connect and how they relate to each other. And if we just go, well, I'm, I'm going to read on to find something that I, I understand a little better. We don't dig in for just a few moments. I think we're going to miss some of those things. And it's not as if Jesus just talked about this in like half a verse in the book of Luke somewhere. This is multiple times Jesus begins talking about some of these end time scenarios and, and even what they mean in the present. And so we may not understand all the pictures, but, but I, I think it's worth digging in and trying to understand a little bit more carefully. So in this passage, I mean, the whole thing is set up by Pharisees in verse 20 asking a question. Did you see that? I mean, when, we, when the Pharisees ask questions, I think we just have to remember in Luke chapter 15, the Pharisees are noted for their grumbling against Jesus. And in Luke chapter 16, they're actually noted for the ridicule of Jesus. So this isn't even a neutral audience. This is a hostile audience that is asking Jesus some of these questions. And it seems like whenever they're asking questions, it's not just like we're just trying to gain some understanding here. It seems like they're playing gotcha games with Jesus, trying to get him to say something that might be controversial in the moment. And so when they ask the question, which they do, like, when is the kingdom of God coming? It certainly isn't out of respect for Jesus. It doesn't seem that way as I understand it. This is what I think the Pharisees have. I think the Pharisees have a curiosity about the future, but I think that curiosity is detached from the present, and I don't think that's okay. I, I think they've got a curiosity about the future, interested in like, well, what's going to happen then? What would, what, what's going on with the kingdom? When will that come? But it seems very detached from the life they're actually living. So they ask, like, when is the kingdom of God coming? And... and and we could give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they just want a guide for future things. I remember when I was flying in, into West Asia one time, someone told me exactly like, this is what's going to happen. You're going to walk through this in customs, and then you're going to go to the left. And when you see this sign, and you're not going to be able to read the language, but, but look for this particular thing and go that way. And that was extremely helpful to, to navigate something that I was unfamiliar with. And, and it's always helpful. So it's this like, well, there's going to be these end, end time things and these signs and... Is he giving clues so that they have a predictable timetable so that they'd, they'd be good? Or maybe they're just asking Jesus because, hey, let's get his uh, hot take on the kingdom of God. What, what, what do you think, Jesus? What's your opinion on that? Seems like there's a curiosity, but it doesn't seem necessarily that they're ready to make the connection. What does that mean to me presently? So notice what Jesus says in verse 20 and verse 21. What he says is that if you are just looking for a bunch of observable signs and piecing them together, trying to decode everything, Jesus would say that's not the perspective you ought to have about the kingdom of God and when it should come. It's not about, oh, look, here it is. Well, what about this? And trying to piece these together, decode the whole thing. Jesus says, well, if you're wanting to look for the kingdom of God, this is, this is not the way to do it. That, that's impersonal to just look for signs. Actually, what Jesus says in the end of verse 21, notice the wording. He says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's present with you. It is right in front of you. 
So you're asking about when is all this going to happen, but presently, you don't realize that the kingdom of God is right in front of you. Don't miss what God is doing there. Don't be like the nine lepers that we just talked about last week that that didn't return because they didn't actually understand that the world revolves around Jesus. Recognize that the kingdom of God has arrived. The rule of God is present. There surely be future dimensions of that. But already it's present. Already God is at work. Just like eternal life, there's future dimensions of that. But, but we're called to live in life now. Not just wait for some sort of future. So Jesus is pushing them and, and really correcting this curiosity about the future. The kingdom of God is in their midst. Even though the, the, this isn't exactly what they expected when the kingdom of God would come. It's in their midst because he is in their midst. Don't, don't miss him. And then he changes audiences. So if he corrects the curiosity kind of approach, he then directs his attention in verse 22 to the disciples. So it's, it's different, isn't it? So the, if the Pharisees are hostile, the disciples aren't. And in contrast, rather than curiosity, what he says, this is what you should have. And he says to the disciples, you should have convictions, not just curiosity, but convictions about the future that should shape the present. Not curiosity, but convictions. And those convictions should actually, from the future, go into your life, go into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and the next year and the next decade. Should God give that to us? It should be shaping what's going to happen in the future should shape us now. He's talking about the future. So he says in verse 22, the days are coming when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. So it's in the future and you won't see it. In the future, they'll say to you, look there, look here, don't go out. And then he says, as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So the future matters. It just should be shaping the present. I think there's a Bible term that, uh, there's lots of these in the Bible where you can just kind of politely nod, like, I think I understand what that means. But Sometimes we don't understand what it means and we just do well to like, I'm not sure what that means. So you read one of those terms here, the day of the son of man. It seems like we got an idea what that could mean, but what does it exactly mean? I feel like it's a merging, a merging of two terms in the, in the Old Testament, the first two thirds of the Bible, and that's the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord was when God would come. And he would come in judgment on sin and his enemies. And he would come in mercy for his people. And like all the world would change when the day of the Lord came. So Jesus speaks here not of the day of the Lord, but he speaks of the day of the Son of Man. When, when, the, when the day of the Lord comes, everything would be made right. But if we kind of merge that with, what is this title that Jesus seems to use over and over again, the Son of Man? Well, in some ways, it's an ambiguous title. It's a very general title. It's just this son of a human being. So everybody's a, a, a son or a daughter of a human being. There's nothing necessarily special about that. But then when you turn over to Daniel 7, there is something special about a son of man coming, who is going to come in clouds and come in authority. He's actually the Messiah going to come. So when you put those together, the day of the Lord and the Son of Man, and you have Jesus speaking here about the day of the Son of Man, he's talking about the day when God works through his Messiah and makes everything right and judgment on God's enemies and judgment on sin and mercy for those that are his. 
So what is Jesus, what are those convictions we should have about that day? I think one of those convictions is this. That the coming or the day of the Son of Man will be something so visible. The disciples of Jesus aren't going to miss it. The coming of the Son of Man or the days of the Son of Man are going to be so visible. The disciples of Jesus aren't going to miss it. Let's, let's try to understand. So in verse 22, remember he said, like, things are going to be tough. You're going to wish there would, there's going to be a day of the Son of Man and, and you won't get there. But don't let that get you impatient so that you're like chasing after someone who says, I, I think the Son of Man's come back here or there. He says, just be patient. Just, just be patient because God isn't playing games. This isn't like God playing hide and seek with his disciples or where's Waldo with his disciples? Well, where is he? We can't find him. It will be just like lightning is across the sky. And nobody's missing that. And it's big and it's bold and everybody sees there it is. That's what the day of the Son of Man will be. You don't have to worry about it as a disciple that you're going to miss it. So the other day I was on a phone call and the phone call was pretty important. It's one of those calls where you like, you want to make sure you hear every word. And the issue was whoever I was talking to must have been driving through where there's like no cell coverage. Or I should, I should correct that, just cell coverage about every, about three seconds every 30 seconds. It's just enough to blip in and out and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. And you don't know if I'm, if I talk, is he going to hear? And, and then you hear like these two words and you, you're hesitant to agree to anything because like, I don't know what you just said. Like, can you just get somewhere near a cell tower so that we can have this conversation? Because it's important and I, I don't want to miss something critical. I don't know. I mean, do we think... God's going to do something so important. And I, we just, oh, we missed it. Oh, we missed it. What was I thinking? Jesus said, that's not the way it's going to be. That's not the way it's going to be. There's coming a day, a day of the Lord, a day of the Son of Man. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this coming of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about the Lord descending. Revelation 19 talks about the coming of Jesus. This day is visible. You know, when, when we were reading those, that passage, I mean, it's an intense passage. It's really not for the faint of heart. I think there's some tendency, and I understand the tendency. I think there are Christians that read such things like, you know, one's taken and one's left and destruction and people being swept away. They're good Christians that read that and maybe they have a low grade or maybe even a high intensity anxiety. Like, I, I don't want to miss that. I just want to remind us. Can I, can I remind you that it's important that we get the term right, right? The day of the Son of Man. So it's the Son of Man's day. It's very personal to Jesus this day. And because it's very personal, those that are his, he's taking care of on that day. So you may be tempted to like, oh, what if the world spins out of control? And like, I, I, I'm not in God's care. And what, what Jesus is reminding you is that this is my day. And, and I take care of those that are mine. My sheep hear my voice and I, and I know them. And no one's ever going to be able to just pluck them out of my hand. And I, I love my sheep. I gave my life for them. I bled for them. I will take care of them. I will see them to the end. So if you're prone to hear all these like cataclysmic signs and go, ah, is it okay? And you are those, and you, you are in Christ. You place your faith in him. Just know he is sure. 
He has endured the wrath of God so that you might be spared from that wrath, that judgment. And everything else in life that we may call to suffer or endure, it's secondary to that. And Jesus is personally overseeing his day. And those that are in him are safe. He drops another reminder to them. In verse 25, he tells them to his disciples, okay, the next significant thing you need to be on the lookout for in verse 25 is, is the cross. Is the cross. It's the time where the, the Son of Man is, is rejected by this generation and has to suffer many things. Here we are all these years later, and it's still the centerpiece is the cross. It's still what we, we sing about. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Don't miss the significance of what Jesus has done on the cross. That's, that is where God is, that's where Jesus is taking them to Jerusalem, and they will see him lifted up on the cross. That's what you need to be looking for, because that sign changes the world. The rest of this chapter continues to take this deeper turn into what's coming. The coming of the Son of Man, it's not just that it's something so visible that you can't miss it. There's also, it comes with the danger so real that the disciples of Jesus must put their hope in his rescue. It's a danger so real that Jesus begins talking in terms of being rescued. And the disciples of Jesus must put their hope in him because because this isn't like a hypothetical situation. This is very real. It's a danger so real. Jesus' disciples must put their hope in his rescue. And he pulls two stories from the first book of the Bible, earliest stories of the Bible. He, He pulls the story of Noah and he pulls the story of Lot. We can, can, we, can we take a moment? Why, why did he pick those two? What was going on in those stories? Well, as you read the stories in Genesis, and, you, and you're, you're welcome to do that, the stories of Noah and Lot, they're both times of great wickedness and great immorality. It's kind of a, an overwhelming wickedness. But, you know, Jesus didn't allude to that immorality in this passage. That's not what he calls attention to, even though it is the time of wickedness. Actually, what he calls attention to in verse 27 and verse 28 is these ordinary concerns that end up taking precedence over a concern about Jesus coming, about God judging. So, so with Noah, look in verse 27. He, he says that in that time, like they were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. That, there's nothing wrong with that. This is just ordinary concerns, but those are taking precedent so that they're not concerned about meeting God. If you look in verse 28, they're, in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Probably many of us did that this week. Buying and selling and planting and building. Eating and drinking. Ordinary concerns, but they became like everything. And they were missing the ordinary, the the extraordinary concern they should have to meet God. And then there came a warning. There came a warning from God in the case of Noah. And this isn't recorded by Jesus, but it certainly is in Genesis. There's a warning from God and a warning from a messenger from God to Lot. And then there was the day of rescue. Verse 27, it tells us Noah was rescued with the boat and Lot was rescued by fleeing, by hightailing it out of Sodom. 
And then, after the warning, after the rescue, there was sudden, surprising, total judgment. We don't minimize anything of what's going on today. It actually helps us understand. I picked this passage long before I knew any sort of the, the hurricane activity in the Atlantic, but it's a, it's a picture of destruction that can come and how, how enormous it can be. Remember, what Jesus is saying is there is a danger so real. There's a danger so real that disciples must put their hope in his rescue. Do we process this danger? Or is there kind of a nonchalance? I mean, maybe the people in Noah's day listened somewhat. Maybe they paid attention somewhat. Maybe they thought, I've got time. Or maybe they thought, maybe they thought, I don't, that's fine for Noah. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. But like, I don't need to worry about that. That's his problem. If he wants to worry about that, good for him, I guess. We'll let him do his thing. Maybe that was the attitude in the days of Lot. I think what there was is no perception they were in danger Let's fill the house with stuff. Let's tend the fields because tomorrow we'll get up and do the same thing again. And then these last verses, verse 31 and 32 say, when judgment like this comes, there's no time to, let's go back in the house and pick up all about it. Nobody's hiring out a U-Haul at that moment. And, and, And then the people even in closest proximity, I mean, this is why it's intimidating image in 34 and 35. Like you got... Two people in a bed and one's taken and one's left and two people working together, grinding at the mill and one's taken and one's left and their lives are lived in close proximity but, but there's something so different and don't just assume that everybody's going to be okay. And then the last picture is one where like there's this end game where there are dead bodies, there are corpses and vultures and these verses, like, they are telling us something of spiritual realities when God's justice comes and makes everything wrong on earth Right? This is life and death, and we cannot, we cannot afford to treat it as, ah, we'll just keep going on. It's significant. The day of the man, the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The day when the glory of the Lord fills this world like it's never seen before. The day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The day when the family of Jesus, his brothers and his sisters, live in perfect blessing. What do we do? Noah's day, get in the ark. Lot's day, get out of town. In our day, we run to Jesus. We run to Jesus. That's, that's our response. That's how we take what could happen in the future and we project that into the present so that we're shaped by that and we Jesus says, repent. So what do we do? We turn from everything else and we we turn to Jesus. Jesus says, believe. So we trust God enough to tell us the truth. That he's not giving us, here's about five different scenarios. Eh, One of them may happen. He's telling us, this is what's going to happen. This This is the model. This is the prototype. Be ready. When Jesus says, follow, we say, hey, Lord, where are you taking us? We're going. Such danger of meeting God without being ready. Even Christians, we can grow inattentive and impatient and lose our, our vigilance. Like, okay, we've got to be ready. We don't, want to, we don't want to be unprepared for the future, so we have to project in the, into the present and let that shape us. So how, how can we let that shape us? 
what are some takeaways? I, I thought of a couple. I, I, I think what can, what should we do in light of this day of the Lord that's coming? I think one of those things is we ought to consider, let me just make it personal, right? I ought to consider my life-saving, my life-preserving plan. I ought to consider, you know, what's my plan to preserve my life? I mean, Jesus wants us to do that. In Luke 17 and, and verse 33, he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. In light of what Jesus said, what are you doing to preserve your life? You've got a thousand cares just like they did in, in Lot's day and, and Noah's day. You have planting and you have building and you have eating and you have drinking. You've got lots of things. You've got buying and selling. But how are you going to preserve your life and make it count? How are you going to take advantage of each moment? What is your plan there? Have you thought about it? There are times where I I begin watching a movie or watching a a documentary, and ah, about 20 minutes in, you realize, I don't know this is going to be that good. It's not that it's immoral or ungodly. It's just like, just kind of... I don't know if it's going to be, but I'll give it a few more minutes. And then you give it a few more minutes and you give it a few more minutes. And an hour and a half or two hours later, the credits roll and you go, that really wasn't that good. And then you think, two hours of my life. I can't get those back. I can't get those back. You know what this passage has done for me this week? I don't get any of them back. I don't get any of them back. So if I'm bent on preserving my life, I ought to think about this carefully. What is my life? What is it that so makes you, you, that if you took it away, it's not so much that you'd be sad, really sad, it's that you don't know that life would be worth living. What is it that you're fighting so hard to keep that you're willing to go to extreme lengths? What is it that makes you, you? Is it the reputation? Is it your name? And when everybody hears it, they have respect. They know that that's... Is it, is it power? Is it to know tomorrow I'm going to make decisions and I'm going to make more decisions and I'm, I'm going to be in charge of things? Is it control? Is it that you can control family, control the situation? And if, if someone were to tell you you can't be in control tomorrow, you'd say, I don't know that I want to live. Because I will be in control. Is it security? So much so that if you were to face the prospect of losing that security and you being exposed, like, I, I don't know that I can keep anything secure. You'd say, I don't know that it's worth living. Is it, is it your health? Is it, is it the approval? So is it that group of friends at school or that group of friends at work or that group of friends in life that if, they, if they're, if they're kind of giving you thumbs down, they're not impressed, you, you're not sure you want to get out of bed in the morning. It's just maybe not worth it. But when they, when they give you some signal that, that they like you and you're part of the group, then instantly it's like, that means something. Is it that relationship that you say, I, I, I must have that. This is all that matters to me. Is it pleasure that if you can't live a life of just getting what you want and buying what you want and that you're not sure it's even worth living? What, what is it? What is it? As Jesus is saying, you try to preserve that, all of what I just said, and you're, you're running the risk of losing your life. But if, but if you lose it for the sake of the name of Jesus, 
if you lose it because the glory of God is your supreme treasure. And you wake up every day thinking, I, I want to live my life in a way that shows that I love him. And I want to take his command to love my neighbor seriously. And I want to do justly. And I want to love mercy. And I want to walk humbly with my God. I want to obey him willingly and gladly. I want to lose my life for that sake. It doesn't mean you stop planting. And it doesn't mean you stop buying and selling and building and eating and drinking. It doesn't mean that. All those things go on. That's life. But what is at the core of who we are? Even this morning, I was looking out and I was... I was just reminded, so being a pastor, you end up on a platform doing a memorial service and you end up doing funerals. So I was thinking this morning, even looking out where my good friend Sandy sat and she gave her life. She didn't try to save it all. She lived her life in ways that showed, I I love Jesus. He's, He's the supreme treasure. I'm not trying to hold on to everything here. And I think of my, my friend Ed who has met Jesus now and I think of so many ways I saw him demonstrate I, I'm not trying to hoard anything. I'm not trying to save everything. I'm not trying to protect my reputation. I've given it. I've given it away. I'm serving Jesus. I think about the powerful example I have. Every time that I look at the picture of my, my dad and I think of a man who gave his life, not trying to save it, Giving it away for his family, giving it away for church, giving it away to the Lord. I think that, that, that's it, isn't it? Not the death grip trying to hold on to it all. So consider, consider, consider your life-saving plan. And then also, as you do that, you should also consider your relationship with the Son of Man. If this passage teaches me anything, it's like, I, I better consider what I'm living for, and I also better connect that to my relationship with the Son of Man, because if my life-preserving plan doesn't have Jesus at the center, doesn't have Jesus at the center, I'm in trouble. And at that time, I mean, there was relationship with the Son of Man. Some people in the day of Luke, some people in that day were like all pro-Jesus, and then there were others that were like, couldn't get rid of him fast enough, and then there were some that decided they'd be neutral on Jesus. But like when the, the day of the Son of Man comes, there is no neutrality. It all is exposed. You're either for him or you were against him. And that's the way you lived your life. Consider your relationship with the Son of Man. There are some important questions that I don't think we should leave here unanswered. So have you processed that the Son of Man suffered and was rejected? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about what that means for you? Have you thought about why he did that, why he suffered on the cross, why he was rejected by this generation? Have you thought about the Son of Man? Have you considered your relationship when he's revealed and we all answer to him? Have you considered how you're living today in light of that, that major appearance that changes everything? Have you considered, do you recognize that what the Pharisees apparently didn't is that Jesus is already present? He's in our midst. Jesus commissioned disciples and told them they, they would gather in his name under the authority of his words and they would be his representatives, his presence. Do I see Jesus working all around me? Do, do I see him giving me taste of his future kingdom? You see, this is what we discovered last week, and we're, we're making a different path, but the same discovery this week. So last week, what mattered in the story of the 10 lepers was the one who decided that Jesus was the center of the universe and turned to him. 
And here we are again. What matters is how you respond to the Son of Man. There's always, there's always at Ogletown, there's always an invitation for you to respond to the Son of Man. To hear the news, which I think will be good news for many, really tough news for those who have no time for Jesus. I'd love to talk with you more. Love, if this like, Curtis, this gives me some real questions. No one wants to make it unusually awkward, but I, I don't want to minimize anything. So just hearing me talk about Jesus and the revelation of his day, the Son of Man, just hearing me, that's not enough. That is not enough just to hear it and be around where like there's lots of Jesus talk. That's not enough. You have to believe. You have to, the hearing has to produce faith in your heart. And Jesus places a premium on not just you hearing and believing, but going public with that. Public with what you believe about him. So do you, do you believe? Is your life preservation plan centered on Jesus or is it centered on you or your family or your stuff? Turn to Jesus today and you say, I'd love to. I just, I need to talk more about what that means. Love to have that conversation. Love to have the conversation about what going public means for you. How do we take the future and bring it into the present, we consider our life-preserving plan. We consider our relationship with the Son of Man. I invite you to bow your head. Thank you, Lord, for not for not leading us down one road and changing the game in the middle of it. Thank you for speaking so clearly about preserving our life. Even as we don't understand all the symbols or maybe putting all this together, the the message is clear. We should be ready and you should be at the center of our lives. Help us, Lord, as we evaluate where things have become ultimate that should should be important but not ultimate. So help us to evict those things from their rule and their reign in our lives. Help us put them in the proper place. Lord, be glorified by the way we respond today. I pray that we would be a church prepared to meet you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.